Judging by our numbers, I suspect there's some sort of national holiday. It's a good thing Jesus said where two or three are gathered together in my name. I'm there in their midst. So friends, it's good to be with you though, the righteous remnant, so let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for the people that you have gathered here, that you delight in anyone who wants to be in your presence, to sit at your feet, to eat at your table. So Lord, would you give us a rich feast now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in week three of a four-part series as we settle into this new space, uh, Water Mark. Rest, reflect, redirect, and then next week is going to be Vivian with Reconnect. So we're saving the best for last. With rest, that was the first invitation we heard from Jesus. It was, come to me all who are tired and burdened, and I will give you rest. And, and that invitation from Jesus echoes something that we hear God saying throughout the centuries, all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And so we heard Jesus invite us into this place of receiving rest for him. And then last week we heard this invitation to reflect, um, and we did this through looking at the story of Mary and Martha, and we talked about how we can be distracted by the many things that are going on in our lives and how Mary brought us back to that one necessary thing, that one needed thing. And that was to sit at the feet of the Lord, to attend to her guest and to receive the words that he was speaking to her in that moment. And now week three, we hear this invitation to redirect ourselves to Jesus as his disciples. And straight at the heart of our passage, actually our passage is kind of two different episodes, straight at the heart of both is this invitation to come and see. Come and see what this Jesus from Nazareth is really all about. And the invitation is said with kind of a certain level of confidence because there's, there's no hype, there's no fireworks, there's no light shows, there's no smoke machines, there's no incentives. It's just like, come, Jesus himself will be enough for you. Come and you will see, says Jesus. Now, within the larger context of John's gospel, it's helpful to see that this invitation to come and see Jesus is actually an invitation to be a part of God's unfolding new creation, to experience the refreshment and the newness that Jesus brings into life. And the way that John tries to show this to us is that he carefully keeps track of time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of Jesus' ministry. So you notice in our passage how it says, on the next day, and then verses later, on the next day, and they stayed with him one night, and it kind of keeps track of how things are happening. What John does at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and at the end is he narrates one week's worth of time. The first week begins and goes through the calling of the disciples and culminates in the wedding at Cana where Jesus changes water into wine. In other words, John is making this point, um, and by the way, the second week culminates in the resurrection on the eighth day, which is uh, new creation. So John's making this point throughout that what is happening in Jesus' ministry from beginning to end is this unfolding of the work of new creation in the world. And so by the fact that these disciples, these first disciples are called by Jesus in this context, 
means to respond to the call to come and see is to get swept up into God's creative purposes for the whole world. The invitation is to come and see. And each time this shows up in our passage, it is followed by a personal encounter between someone and Jesus himself. The first encounter in verses kind of 35 to 42 is precipitated by Andrew. Andrew has a brother. His name is Simon. And he grabs his brother and he says, you've got to meet this Jesus. We have found the Messiah. And he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says in verse 42, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called now Cephas, which means Peter. Now, to sense the importance of this moment, of this encounter between Jesus and Simon, now called Cephas or Peter, we have to understand the significance of names in the ancient world. A name designated identity. Not only who you are, but who you are going to become. What you want to grow into. And that's why in some churches, even to this day, when you are baptized, you are given a new name. Because in baptism, it is symbolizing that your identity has changed in Christ. So names are a gift in the ancient world. But one of the the complexities of naming is that we live in a world where post-fall, we are so often denamed or depersonalized and therefore obscured from who we really are. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates Eve out of the woman, and the first time he sees her, he says, Behold, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And it's this moment of delight and personal joy. And she is called Eve. She has a name. And then by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, they've eaten of the fruit from the tree, and God goes walking through the garden looking for his image bearers and says, Adam, what happened? And Adam says, that woman you gave me, she did it. Notice Eve loses her name. She becomes distanced and depersonalized and denamed. She's just now that woman. And this kind of depersonalized depersonalizing tendency runs straight through human history and even to our own day, like from social media to political rhetoric to endless forms of bureaucracy. I've now immigrated to like three different nations, and so bureaucracy is a sensitive spot for me. Whatever it is, there's this tendency to depersonalize one another. I mean, there's almost isn't a person I've talked to over the last 14 to 18 months that doesn't feel like they have been misunderstood at some point that doesn't feel like they have been labeled by somebody at some point, that doesn't feel like they have been depersonalized by somebody at some point. And so in a world of denaming, there is a transformative power in being named again, especially by the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus calls people by name. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. I think it's interesting he says the son of John. It would have been common in those days. 
But I think it also reminds us that when we're struggling in life, whether we're struggling as a mother or as a husband or as a friend or as a coworker or as a member of church, what we often don't need is just a rah-rah speech about how to do it better and six steps about how to get on with it. What we need is Jesus or someone else to remind us of who we are. You are a mother. That's who God created you to be in this moment. You are a husband. That is who God made you to be. You are a friend. That is the gift that God has given you in this moment. You are a member of this church body. That is who God has created you to be in this moment. This is who you are. You get the sense all throughout the Gospels that Jesus knew people. He knew people before they ever knew him. And just the way in which he speaks to them seems to communicate this to them somehow. When he speaks, he speaks to the core of their person, to the deepest part of their identity and who they are. Any of you seen the show The Chosen? Okay, thank you. Somebody gave me an amen. That's good. So um, if anybody has talked to Susie and I over the last like month or two, we have probably brought this up and rambled on about it for a long time. But we love the show, The Chosen. And the backstory there is it's basically a show that is about Jesus calling his disciples, and it's kind of historical fiction. It fills in these backstories that are made up but are believable in that time and age to kind of help us see that the people that Jesus calls to follow him are, are real people and what that would have been like for them. And season one, episode one, begins with the story of Mary Magdalene, who's a major figure kind of strung throughout, and she's my favorite figure in, it, in the whole thing. And the opening scene is her as a little girl in the middle of the night around a campfire with her father, and she's scared. It's dark. And her father is saying to her now, Mary, what do we do when we are scared? Do you remember what the prophet Isaiah said? And then he has Mary repeat, after him as a little girl and says, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then as the episode in the story kind of goes on, Mary grows up. She loses her father to an illness. She suffers horrible abuse at the hands of um, Roman men. She's possessed by demons. Nicodemus is even sent to like the, the red district uh, to heal her. He was the major Jewish teacher of that day, and he could not free her of the demons that possessed her. And she just ended up turning to, trying to drown her sorrows away in drink. But there was this one evening when she was emerging from the underground bar, and this is the final scene of the episode, that she's walking away with a drink in hand. And Jesus is walking behind her, and he calls out, Mary, Mary. And just her name stops her in her tracks. And she turns around, and Jesus looks at her, and he says, Thus says the Lord who created you, Mary, and he who formed you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Repeating those words that her own father said to her around the camp. And she breaks down, and Jesus just embraces her. You see, each one of us longs to have a name, to be given a name, to be known by name in the presence of the Lord, to have an identity that is known and cherished, and to have a place where we are embraced, and to be seen with compassion and with care, 
and to be loved precisely in those places and in those moments when we are weakest and most fragile and most broken and most desperate. Jesus knows us like this, and he calls us like this. And in verse 39, he invites us to stay with him and keep company with him like this. He said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. That's the same language that shows up in John chapter 15. Stay in me and I in you. Remain in me and I in you. Abide in me, I in you. Homes are places where people are known by name. The second encounter is precipitated by Philip. Jesus goes and finds Philip, and then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And in verse 45, Nathaniel says something similar to what Andrew said to Peter. He says, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Joseph. And you can kind of imagine him out of breath because he's just run to get him and, and all these words flowing out, all the hopes of Israel for, for many long years finally coming to their fruition. You've got to see this Jesus. Now, Nathaniel seems skeptical of the grandiose claims that are being made about this man from Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth is not exactly Jerusalem or some other more noble places. And yet, Philip insists, just come and see. You just have to see for yourself. You have to experience it for yourself. And at this point in the narrative, it hones in on this little word, see. A few weeks ago, we honed in on the word, come. Now we hone in on the word, see. But the interesting thing is that Nathaniel's invited to come see Jesus, but then the verbs switch. All of a sudden, it is Jesus who sees Nathaniel before Nathaniel ever sees Jesus. And you see this in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says to him, How do you know me? Jesus answers, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answers him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In other words, this is, the, uh, this is the only explanation for being known like this, Nathanael believes, that this must be the King. This must be the Son of God. There's something about this knowledge of this person, the way in which he knows me, and he knows me before I ever know him, that speaks of something far beyond just human. It's something divine and royal. I've often wondered, like, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree in the first place? Was he angry and dejected and crying out to God? Was he lonely, isolated, and lamenting his lot in life? Or was he crafty and being secretive and securing an underhand business deal? Some dates for some olives. Whatever it was, Jesus saw him, and he knew and one of the things that we are to discern here is that part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is coming to know that Jesus is acquainted with us before we are ever acquainted with him. I mean, I'm reminded of, of the Israelites and how they cried out under the hand of oppression in Egypt in Exodus chapter 2, and we're told that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant and God saw his people and God knew. 
I'm reminded of Hagar when she uh, has to flee the fickle and oppressive household of Sarai, and the angel of the Lord comes to her to reassure her that she, her affliction is seen by the Lord. It has not gone unnoticed, and she cries out in response to the Lord, you are the God who sees. And then I'm reminded of David as he's reflecting on his own life in the presence of the Lord, all the brokenness and all the joys of it. He marvels at the fact that God knit him together in his mother's womb. God saw his unformed substance before he ever had a single day. You see, throughout scriptures, God has this penchant for seeing the least of these for seeing the invisible and the oppressed and the burdened. And it's his gentle and loving and powerful gaze that gives meaning and purpose and stability amidst the changes and chances and uncertainties of their life. They're seen by Jesus even when they cannot see him. But Jesus says, you'll see me too. This too will be my gift to you. Verse 50, Jesus answered him and said, Because you, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Surely you're going to see greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you. And in the Greek here, the, the you actually switches from singular to plural, which is really important because it's as if Jesus is looking straight off the page of Scripture now, not just to Nathaniel, but to all of us as his church. Truly, truly, I say to you, plural, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so what we discover is that discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, is not just about discovering that he knows us and sees us before we ever see him, but it's also about coming to see Jesus for who he really is seeing Jesus for who he really is. Because it's that and that alone which can ultimately refresh the tired and the weary. Can heal the sick and mend the broken. Can confront, can comfort the afflicted and strengthen the weak. Can confront the proud and forgive the sinners. And so one of the kind of pastoral and personal questions I just kind of want to end on for the next three or four minutes well, it could be put in a negative and a positive way. So let's, let's start with the negative way, like, what aspects of Jesus have we forgotten? What aspects of who Jesus is have we forgotten as individuals or as a church or as a society or in this given season? Like, what are we missing? And then the more positive ways of putting it is, like, what aspects of Jesus, of who he is, are we being invited to come and see afresh? or maybe for the first time, to cherish, to love, to enjoy. In our passage, I think there's a rich feast it gives us if we just walk through the passage. I mean, in verse 36, we're invited to come and see Jesus as a redeemer. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And notice, this is a word of John about Jesus. And John is the people who's gathered all the really serious religious folk and taken them out into the wilderness and said, you guys are the righteous remnant. It's the people that take what they're doing really seriously when it comes to their faith. And yet it's often those people that can so easily carry around so much guilt and shame in their lives because they feel like they have to carry that burden on their own. 
And John sees Jesus and he says, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That just raises a question for me. Am I fully trusting Jesus to take away my own sin and the sin of others? Is there an invitation to receive from him as Redeemer? In verse 38, we're invited to come and see Jesus as teacher. Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? And then later Jesus says, follow me, which is basically his way of saying, become my student, become my disciple. And I'm struck by this because for those of you that have maybe grown up in the church your whole life and you've been told, you are saved by grace. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's love. It's not by works, but it's by grace that you're completely saved. Like, that's a really good word that we need to hear. But so oftentimes, what we also need to hear is like, what does it look like to stay close to the rabbi? How do I keep company with him? How do I know what it means to walk with him and to be in his presence? To live in his grace. And so maybe for those of us that are in that situation, it's just an invitation. Come learn from the teacher. Let him teach you. In verses 41 and 45, we're invited to come see Jesus as the fulfiller. We found the Messiah. We found the one that Moses was talking about. He's here. And I'm really struck by this because I grew up with the sense that Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. I accepted him into my heart when I was four years old uh, as Sandy was helping us reflect on. I was thinking about sitting on a bed at a lake house. We were on holiday, I guess, uh, with my father and him telling me to accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. But one of the things I've had to grow in is seeing Jesus not just in the framework of my world, (laughs) but in the framework of all of history, that he has come to be the Messiah of the Jewish people that he has come to be the one who sets free all of creation from the bondage of sin and decay and death. And so that's what Jesus being the fulfiller is all about. He comes to redeem the entire world. And maybe we're being invited to have our vision expanded as we come and see him. In verse 49, we're invited to see Jesus as a ruler. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. You're a ruler, not just a servant who washes feet, but but a Lord who rules over all. And then in verse 51, we're invited to come and see Jesus as revealer. It's that image of, of heavens opened, the veil pulled back. It's kind of like apocalyptic imagery, this revelation. And it uses this title, the Son of Man, which is this image of the Son of Man from Daniel 7 coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving all power and honor and glory and authority over all the nations of the world. We are invited to come and see Jesus revealed in all of his glory. The redeemer, the teacher, the fulfiller, the ruler, the revealer. Come and see, says Jesus. And you will find deep and satisfying rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.